A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know, Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It was an unseasonably warm Saturday night in April of 1941. The citizens of Cape Girardeau, Missouri, were prepping for the following day's Easter celebration. Reverend William Guy Huffman sat in his living room, enjoying a quiet evening with his family. And then the phone rang. He checked the clock, 9.30 p.m. Huffman wondered who would be calling at this time of night. He answered, his irritation transitioning to concern, when he learned that it was the local police department. They needed his help. An airliner had missed the sunset deadline for its landing at the unlit Cape Airfield. The plane had gone down in a fiery blaze. The reverend was summoned to the site to say some final prayers and give the victims their last rites. But something about that phone call made Huffman uneasy. Why weren't the passengers being brought to a hospital, to a funeral home? The situation felt unconventional to the seasoned reverend. Within the hour, an unmarked sedan appeared to take Huffman to the scene of the crash. And when he stepped foot into that open field on that April evening, his concerns were validated. What Reverend Huffman found at the scene was no ordinary plane crash. And as he approached the bodies of the victims, he knew almost immediately that they were anything but human. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. 
But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology, and each story has garnered thousands, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. You can find all episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Extraterrestrial for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first of two episodes on the UFO crash landing at Cape Girardeau, Missouri in 1941, a full six years before the infamous event in Roswell, New Mexico. This week, we'll follow the experiences of Reverend William Huffman, which were first recounted by his granddaughter, Charlotte Mann, nearly 50 years later. What did Huffman see that fateful Easter weekend? And what happened to the people in the surrounding towns who were all forced to share his elusive secret? Next week, we'll discuss what happened to the evidence following the crash. Is it possible that the artifacts and bodies found at the site were stored under a historic DC landmark? Could the evidence found in this crash have helped with the World War II war effort? Cape Girardeau, Missouri, played a large role in the nation's history. In 1803, the Lewis and Clark expedition made a stopover in their 55-foot keelboat. In 1835, the Cape became one of the busiest river towns and resting points on the Mississippi River. Captain Samuel Clemens docked his steamboat at Cape Girardeau many times before the Civil War. He later wrote about this stretch of the river when he went on to become a novelist under the pen name Mark Twain. By the mid-1900s, visitors to the area were ominously greeted by a sign that read, Cape Girardeau, where the river turns a thousand tales. But the most fascinating tale to come out of Cape Girardeau is that of Reverend William Huffman on an unforgettably warm evening in April of 1941. Huffman was 52 years old the night he received that fateful phone call. An evangelist new to the town of Cape Girardeau, the Reverend was already well-liked and well-respected in his community. Huffman had been brought on at the Red Star Baptist Church for his skills at fundraising and congregation building. He was a natural-born leader. But when Huffman got into the unmarked sedan that Saturday before Easter, he felt anxious. He hadn't been in Cape Girardeau long, but he was certain the man driving was not a local police officer. In fact, Huffman never got much out of his driver at all. Instead, they rode quietly for 25 minutes and stopped somewhere between the town of Cape Girardeau and the nearby town of Sykeston. When the car stopped, the two men walked for a quarter mile through dense, untamed woods and then finally into an open stretch of unused farmland. And that's when Huffman's feelings and anxiety were validated. He found the field scattered with small flames being extinguished by the local firefighters. 
Dozens of department officials, photographers, volunteers, and local civilians were also there, assessing the damage. But amongst the chaos and excitement of the local townsfolk, Huffman could only focus on one thing. The shattered machine that splayed before him was unlike any airplane he'd ever seen before. Round, smooth, disc-shaped, made of an unrecognizable metal. This appeared to be a flying saucer. But the crash in Cape Girardeau predated terms like flying saucer and extraterrestrial. In 1941, television was in its infancy and TV sets were a household rarity. People weren't yet familiar with the visual spectacles of science fiction. However, this scene certainly matched that description. The Reverend was so close to the downed object that he was even able to get a direct view inside. The impact had created a large opening in the side of the craft, and Huffman was able to make out small, child-sized seats in the main vestibule. They were positioned in front of a board of gauges and lights. He also noticed some strange markings inscribed along the interior of the ship. It appeared to be a written language similar to ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Unfortunately, Huffman wasn't close enough to make out more specific details. Instead, his attention was turned to the area outside of the spaceship. There, lying in the grass just ahead of him, were two small, lifeless bodies. A few moments later, he noticed a third corpse located a bit further off in the distance. Because of their positioning, it looked to Huffman as if all three had been ejected from the craft at impact. From a distance, Huffman could only make out what the bodies were wearing. Wrinkled, tight-fitting, silver-gray suits. He made his way closer and began to notice that the creatures were also much smaller than the average human. And somehow, the mere sight of them chilled the Reverend to his core. As he moved closer, he could see that they were completely hairless, only about four feet tall, with large, oval-shaped eyes and small slits for their noses and mouths. But their most distinguishing feature, their giant heads. The first two beings were clearly deceased, but as Huffman approached the third, his heart sank. It was still alive. He feared the strange creature, but he also had sympathy for it as it struggled to hold on to life. He leaned over the body, his knees damp from the cool, wet grass. He observed the small, helpless creature as it gasped for air. He wondered if its lungs were even compatible with Earth's oxygen. Reverend William Huffman stared, fascinated and terrified. Feeling completely helpless, he simply did what he'd come to do. He read the being its final Christian rites as it took its last shallow breath. Huffman somberly walked back to the two other creatures and continued his prayers. In the distance, he noticed a few journalists snapping photos of the scene. One of those reporters was a man named Garland D. Fronebarger, also known as One Shot Frony. He'd earned his nickname for his ability to capture a picture on the first take. But Frony was also well known for staging his photos. 
Huffman watched as Frony had two men lift the alien up by its armpits. In their matching brimmed hats, the anonymous men posed with the lifeless being. They stretched out the creature's arms to display its enormous span, probably hoping to see their photos on the cover of the Sykeston Herald come Monday. Huffman tried to make sense of the dreamlike moment. Never in all his years had he experienced anything as bizarre as this. It was then that the Reverend realized he was witnessing a critical piece of history, except this momentous occasion would remain unknown for decades. It was around this time that the FBI and the United States Army began to arrive on the scene in flatbed trucks. The Missouri Institute of Aeronautics, a respected Army pilot training program, also known as the MIA, was just a short distance away at Sykeston Airfield. Presumably, many of the officials were dispatched from the MIA that evening to assist with the situation. The locals' excitement was cut short when armed soldiers hopped out of their vehicles and began to threaten the civilians marveling at the scene. They ordered everyone to step away from the creatures and the craft while they took control. Reverend Huffman and the other volunteers were separated and instructed to remain silent. He remembered hearing the words, This didn't happen. You didn't see any of this. This is a matter of national security and it should never be spoken of again. The uniformed men were even more terrifying than the otherworldly beings. They yelled in the faces of the firemen, reporters, farmers, the reverend. If this was an ordinary plane crash, why was it being handled so aggressively? Why was this a matter of national security? Not to mention, what would happen to the people of Cape Girardeau if they weren't able to keep this enormous secret? Coming up, Reverend William Huffman and the town of Cape Girardeau grow paranoid in an effort to protect this national security matter. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now back to our story. It was April of 1941, and 52-year-old Reverend William Huffman had just experienced what might have been the first instance of human-alien contact on American soil. He'd arrived at the scene in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, expecting to find a tragic plane crash. Instead, he and a handful of citizens from Cape Girardeau and the surrounding towns discovered a small metallic disk— 
Alongside the crashed saucer were what could only be described as the remains of three extraterrestrial beings. Soldiers soon arrived onto the scene, scaring the locals into silence. They announced that they would be taking any physical evidence that had been collected from the area. Everyone was searched before they left the scene that night. It was clear that the military didn't want to alarm any more Americans by going public with this event. In a pre-war America, the last thing the U.S. needed was people worried about another threat, especially one from another planet. And no one in the prairie field that night wanted to be branded as a rabble-rouser, or worse, a traitor or a spy. This was a time of patriotism, and these citizens of Cape Girardeau were happy to do their part in protecting the rest of the world from the truth. For the most part, everyone on the scene politely obeyed and respected the orders given. Everyone except for one local firefighter, 30-year-old Walter Reynolds. Reynolds was less than pleased that the military had shown up on his turf that night, barking orders in the faces of his brave colleagues. And like Reverend Huffman, Reynolds and his team had been shocked when they arrived to find a downed alien spacecraft. The experienced Reynolds was putting out fires and checking for casualties when the Army and other government forces arrived. They began to take over the scene, placing the dazed crew on the sidelines and yelling to them, what you see here stays here. The men tried to ask questions about the craft and where it was being taken, but instead they were stonewalled. Feeling useless and frustrated, Reynolds and his team watched as the military men hauled the disc away, never to be seen again. In response, Reynolds did something that was rather uncharacteristic for the dedicated firemen. In an impulsive act of defiance, Reynolds grabbed a piece of shrapnel from the downed craft. Either Reynolds wanted a small souvenir to prove his tale to others, or perhaps he just needed a reminder that this strange experience hadn't all been a dream. Reynolds stuffed the shrapnel into his pocket and went about his business. But Reynolds was caught by one of the uniformed soldiers. He was then frisked and the shrapnel was removed from his pocket. The evidence was whisked away by another soldier and Reynolds was promptly removed from the site. Garland Frony Fronebarger was another civilian who was searched that night, and almost all of his film was confiscated by the military. But the uniformed men seemed to miss the small reserve model camera that Frony snuck off the scene in his shirt pocket. Reverend Huffman watched as tensions heightened between the soldiers and civilians. Soon, his driver appeared, telling him it was time to head home. After being searched and cleared, they silently returned to the vehicle, and Huffman arrived back home around 11 p.m. He stoically hung up his coat and returned his Bible to the shelf. His wife, Floyd, and two sons, Guy and Wayne, were anxiously waiting for him to come home, hoping to get some details about the crash. Reverend William Huffman made a tough choice that night. He told his wife and children his story, but then insisted that none of them were to speak of the event ever again. This was a matter of national security, and it was their duty as American citizens to keep the matter a secret. 
Later that same night, the otherworldly items were quickly and efficiently gathered, bagged, and whisked away by a recovery team. Rumors began to surface amongst the townsfolk that the evidence was taken down the road to the Sykeston Airport, the home base of the Missouri Institute of Aeronautics. It was here that the larger materials were likely loaded into a top-secret hangar, while the smaller bits of debris were probably stored away in an army footlocker. They would be held there until further notice from the army. Those rumors were confirmed years later by an MIA pilot who we'll refer to as Jim. Jim was a Parks Air College student who says he helped the Army transport the bodies from Sykeston Airport back to Cahokia, Illinois. It's unclear whether Jim was an experienced medic who was sent to delicately handle the bodies of the otherworldly beings, or if he was randomly selected as a last-minute security team member. But we do know that one source claimed to have seen a very large airplane parked on the Sykeston runway one afternoon. The plane was much larger than any others that were ordinarily stationed at the airport. The facilities were heavily guarded by uniformed soldiers and military personnel. Nevertheless, the source claimed to be so close that they could make out suspicious-sounding orders, saying no one to approach the aircraft without permission. If this were a routine pickup for medical supplies or provisions for the war effort, why did it require such secrecy? What was really being loaded onto that plane, and why did it require top-secret security measures? But what happened over the next few weeks in Cape Girardeau might have been just as bizarre as the crash itself. There was absolutely no formal follow-up to the strange events. No news reports, no radio stories. Even gossip was hard to come by. In fact, the military never called on Reverend William Huffman again after that day. Nor was any follow-up information ever given to him or his family. It was as if the entire event had been a distant dream. The people of Cape Girardeau were seemingly scared into silence. A dark cloud hung over the town, as many seemed to be too afraid to even socialize with one another. The once bright and carefree citizens of Cape Girardeau seemed overcome by a dark cloud of doom. As the weeks passed by, Huffman began to question his own sanity. Had he been drinking the night of the crash? Was he drugged? Perhaps he was having some kind of a mental health crisis, or maybe he was just mistaken about what he saw. All he could do was go about his daily routine and try to forget about the event. But 52-year-old Huffman wasn't the only one to question his experiences after seeing the strange alien craft. Other people in town also began to burst at the seams, trying to keep the town's enormous secret. 30-year-old Walter Reynolds was dealing with his own paranoia. Weeks after the crash, Reynolds began to feel like he was being followed, watched by government officials. Was there someone out there that felt he was a threat because he had tried to take that piece of shrapnel? Was the government afraid that Reynolds would be a whistleblower? Or was he simply feeling guilty for not following orders the night of the crash? 36-year-old Garland Frony Fronebarger, the well-respected newspaper writer and photographer from the night of the crash, was also feeling stressed. Frony's paranoia was soon validated. 
The photographer was possibly the only person to walk away from the crash with evidence. The small reserve camera that he'd managed to sneak away in his shirt pocket had captured a critical image, one that now weighed on Frony's conscience like a ton of bricks. Frony was a Baptist, a man of faith. And while he wasn't a member of Huffman's church, the reporter knew the reverend had been present the night of the crash. And now he needed his help. A month or so after the crash, the anxious Frony cautiously approached the reverend's home. It was late afternoon and he looked gaunt and terrified as Reverend Huffman answered the door and looked Frony up and down. In his shaking hands was the snapshot he'd managed to keep and develop from the night of the crash. The image was familiar to Reverend Huffman. It was the same moment he'd watched Frony capture. An image of two men propping up a short, large-headed alien in a wide-open field. This begs the question, had Frony really gotten the shot and walked away with it? Or did Frony recreate the image after the fact? Perhaps all of his film was confiscated and Frony was furious that his prized shot was ripped from his hands. Was he doing this for the recognition, to get the story out? Or was he actually terrified of being caught with extraterrestrial evidence in hand? Whatever his motives, the photographs seemed to cause the reporter plenty of stress. He nervously asked the reverend if he would take it, almost as if he needed some psychological relief from the evidence. His voice shaking, Frony told Huffman, you're the only one I trust with it. Seeing how distraught Frony was, Huffman reluctantly took the picture off his hands. He sent the photographer on his way, hoping to offer him some peace of mind. But Huffman was now terrified of what he held in his own hands. The image felt like a hot potato. Huffman didn't want to burden another family with the photograph, nor did he want to destroy what could have been the one piece of civilian evidence that remained from that night. Instead, Reverend William Huffman decided to give the photograph to his 24-year-old son, Guy, for safekeeping. He felt that this way, he would have plausible deniability if any government officials came sniffing around for it later on, yet it would be close by if he needed it. But unlike his father, Guy wasn't afraid of the consequences. He enjoyed having photographic evidence of an alien encounter in his possession. In fact, it became a bit of a conversation piece when entertaining guests at their dinner parties and social gatherings. But he was very careful not to go into too much detail about the image. He wanted to protect his father's story, so he didn't tell his guests that the photo was snapped in Cape Girardeau or that Huffman had been present when it was taken. But despite his caution, he was being naive. Guy and all the people of Cape Girardeau would soon realize they'd need to watch over their shoulders for years to come. Coming up, the crash witnesses face serious consequences and one Sykeston housewife wonders if her husband is the reason for the UFO crash landing in their own backyard. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. 
I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. And now back to our story. In April of 1941, 52-year-old Reverend William Huffman was present at what may have been one of America's earliest extraterrestrial encounters. Weeks and months after the event, the people living in the town of Cape Girardeau grew paranoid, terrified that the secret would come back to haunt them. And 30 miles away from Cape Girardeau, the people of Sykeston, Missouri, were also dealing with the after effects of that warm spring evening back in April. In 1941, around 8,000 people lived in Sykeston. The city was located on a flat plain, which made it perfect for landing or launching aircraft. The Missouri Institute of Aeronautics, or MIA, had only been formed a year prior at what is known today as the Sykeston Memorial Municipal Airport. There was one particular couple directly tied to the events at MIA, according to Linda Wallace's book, Covert Retrieval, Urban Legend or Hidden History. Their identities have never officially been released to the public, so we'll be using the pseudonyms Keith and Alice. Keith was not a pilot, nor was he in the Army, but he did have a wide range of knowledge when it comes to aeronautics. He was more of a trusted flight technician and communications expert, which meant Keith was more than just a competent mechanic. In today's world, he might be called a flight technology engineer, but most importantly, Keith was part of the MIA flight training team and a very intelligent and secretive man. Many believe that some of the MIA flight training team, which included Keith, were the ones who pushed the locals off the crash site. The Missouri Institute of Aeronautics was one of the most significant aviation centers in the area, so its workers were presumed to have played some part in cleaning up the crash in 1941, especially given their proximity. In the spring of 1941, Keith's fiancée, 20-year-old Alice, had just returned home to Sykeston after graduating from college. It was at this time that she began to hear whispers about the recent alien crash. During their courtship, Keith remained tight-lipped about the incident that had happened only weeks earlier, neither confirming nor denying any of Alice's questions. In fact, Keith said nothing at all about the incident to his soon-to-be bride, which created a sore spot in the relationship, especially when Keith was called away in 1942 for a secretive advanced training seminar in Chicago. Alice's imagination ran wild. She felt certain that this was connected to Keith's involvement with the crash. 
But with the U.S. fresh into World War II, silence was crucial on all military-related matters. Keith never breathed a word to Alice on what he was doing up north in Chicago. Allegedly, he may have been participating in secret operations at the University of Chicago's Special Metallurgical Laboratory. This was a hub for the infamous Manhattan Project. Many involved in the Manhattan Project didn't know the full scope of the giant puzzle they were working on. Most only focused on their own small piece. And it's possible that Keith never spoke about his role in the operation simply because he didn't have answers to give Alice. But when he returned to Sykeston in late 1942, Alice felt that her fiancé was no longer the same man he'd been before. The once popular and social 22-year-old Keith was now an introvert, turning down opportunities to socialize with the couple's friends, despite having been away for quite some time. He mostly kept to himself and became obsessed with Einstein's theories on nuclear physics and war. He also suddenly became interested in nature and the mechanics of the universe. What had changed for Keith up in Chicago? The gossip continued to circulate in Sykeston, mostly in regards to the MIA's involvement in the crash. Many turned to Alice looking for answers, hoping to be let in on a secret from her fiancé's experiences. Instead, Alice learned what she could from other townsfolk. One particular claim kept Alice awake at night as she began to question the man who now laid beside her. Speculation had been increasing over whether the MIA, and more specifically, Alice's soon-to-be husband, may have been the cause of an alien spacecraft crash. She did know that Keith had acquired a new skill while working on the base. He'd been one of the few who was instructed on how to use a new form of technology known as a heliograph. The heliograph was a wireless telegraph that used mirrors to reflect flashes of light. The flashes were created by pivoting the mirrors on the machine or by interrupting them with a beam in order to communicate from a distance. The device was ultimately used by American troops in battle to signal one another with Morse code. So it was possible that Keith had been using the heliograph that Saturday night in April and had knowingly or unknowingly distracted the passing alien beings in their spacecraft. But could Keith really have played a role in the crash? Alice eventually married Keith, but her imagination wouldn't rest until she questioned Keith about the gossip one evening in 1942. Keith felt the accusation was absolute nonsense and became irritated with his wife's relentless inquiries. He tirelessly defended himself and dismissed the claims, almost too emphatically. Alice seemed convinced. What she didn't know was that Keith quickly reported her accusation to his superiors at the base. Keith's supervisors made it very clear that he would need to convince his wife that the rumors were lies and put her overactive imagination to rest once and for all. One thing was certain. The gossip circulating in Sykeston, and more specifically in Keith's home, had struck a nerve with his superiors at the MIA. But the question remains, why were these high-ranking officials spending their precious time trying to dismiss a bunch of so-called lies coming from a bored housewife? 
As the days passed, Alice began to miss the once fun-loving, affectionate, and carefree man she'd married. Keith stayed involved with the MIA program and helped train new members well into the 1940s. But during that time, Alice became concerned, not only with Keith's behavior, but with the mysterious and untimely deaths that were beginning to rock the Sykeston community. Alice and Keith began to hear of a few locals who'd suddenly died in suspicious-sounding accidents and suicides in Sykeston and the surrounding communities. A newspaper article claimed that one former employee of the MIA hung himself in his barn around 1942 after working on a government project. Every few months, another death was reported in the once small and peaceful county in Missouri. Hangings, gunshots, murders, and even strange and senseless vehicle accidents. Sykeston's residents were on edge, watching over their shoulders and wondering if they would be next. In fact, the tension got so high that the people of Sykeston, and more specifically employees of the MIA, began to look for scapegoats anywhere they could find them. On January 25, 1942, a black man named Cleo Wright was arrested on charges of assaulting a white woman and was held at the city jail. The following morning, a mob of 75 white men rushed the jail and pulled Cleo Wright out of his cell. He was then dragged through the streets of Sykeston's black neighborhood. The mob beat Cleo Wright to death and forced his wife to identify his body before burning him in the streets. And to make matters worse, this horrible act of violence might have actually been led by a few unnamed men from the Missouri Institute of Aeronautics. The most shocking element was that no one was ever arrested for the murder of Cleo Wright. His family was never brought justice. Instead, there was an alleged stonewall and secret agreement to never speak of the murder committed by the townspeople and the MIA employees ever again. So were the men working at the MIA now untouchable? Were they all too invaluable to be persecuted for the brutal murder of Cleo Wright? What was happening at the facility that gave these men such extreme government protection? In May 1944, Alice was extremely disturbed to read about the death of a 28-year-old woman who was married to a man working at the MIA. Keith and Alice knew her personally. Alice let her curiosity get the best of her and inquired about the woman's death to some mutual friends one afternoon at a card party. One of the young wives looked Alice directly in the eyes and warned her not to talk about the events lest you be next. Alice required no further warnings. Clearly, something very serious was happening. Alice believed someone was going to great measures to keep things quiet. As for the woman mentioned in that 1944 obituary, her maiden name was Fisk. And while it's impossible to say if the two were related, the woman's name possibly linked her to another key player a government agent named Walter Fisk. Fisk was a 31-year-old psychologist who claimed to be a past advisor to a few anonymous U.S. presidents. He started his career in the Navy, moved to the Army, and then went into intelligence years later. 
He befriended Guy Huffman, the son of Reverend William Huffman, in the early 1950s when the two were living in a small Kansas town. Fisk was invited to Guy's home one evening in 1953 for a dinner party. At some point during the evening banter, Guy, now 37, casually mentioned the alien photograph in his possession. Fisk was exceptionally curious about the photo, and Guy was happy to pull out his usual party trick. Guy kept the details to a minimum, playing coy in regards to where and when the image was taken. And yet, Fisk was fascinated with this piece of alien evidence. He claimed that he was rather proficient in the art of photography and asked Guy if he could bring the image home to analyze it in his personal lab. He promised Guy that he could verify whether the image was real or manipulated. He assured him that he would return the photo as soon as he was finished. But alas, Guy and his family never saw that photograph again. Instead, Charlotte, Guy's daughter, believes that Walter Fisk lied to the family from the start. With Fisk's background, is it possible he was involved in some sort of government cover-up? Perhaps he kept tabs on Guy Huffman and befriended him after learning he had evidence of alien contact. Or perhaps he was just some sticky-fingered thief hoping to make a buck off of the Huffman's astonishing artifact. For years, these questions would go unanswered until one woman set out to solve them. Linda L. Wallace, a former childhood resident of the Sykeston area, grew up hearing rumors of her father's involvement in the government cover-up. Though it's difficult to confirm, her parents were likely none other than Keith and Alice. In the early 2000s, Linda Wallace, now in her late 50s or early 60s, began to do some digging into her father's past and the alien crash landing near Sykeston. She began searching through the town's archives and discovered that the fire, sheriffs, and police departments all had zero records of an airplane crash from that April in 1941. Linda eventually located Jim, the MIA pilot who supposedly helped transport the alien bodies to Chicago. She found that he had taken up residency in a locked wing of the Sykeston nursing home. The now elderly Jim was described to Linda by a friend of the family as a somewhat confused man who said he picked up the bodies of crash victims from the MIA base. Linda pulled some strings to get a meeting and was excited to speak with possibly the last living witness to the events at the MIA after the crash. Linda knew that some of Jim's friends had accused him of being crazy after speaking openly about the alien bodies he was sent to recover. Linda wondered if this was why he was placed in a secure wing of the facility. When Linda met with Jim, she began by questioning him about her father. She claimed the man's face went from a blank look to an ear-to-ear -ear grin. Your dad was my crew chief. That was so long ago. But when Linda asked Jim if she could question him further on the events of the crash and the MIA's involvement, his blank look returned and he grew nervous, refusing to answer any more questions. Linda continued to hit brick walls. She was dying to know where the evidence from that night in Cape Girardeau went. 
If so many people claim to have experienced the same things, both in Cape Girardeau and at the MIA facilities, why couldn't she dig up any more information? And why were some sources like Jim so cagey about sharing their story? Jim passed away a few weeks after he met with Linda, heightening her suspicions even further. What secrets would Jim take to the grave? And more importantly, where did he and his colleagues take those bodies after they left Missouri in 1941? Was their secret so powerful that the government was willing to kill to keep it covered up? Next week, we'll explore what happened to the evidence that was stored at the Missouri Institute of Aeronautics. And we'll explore the theory that those items went on to be stored in the basement of one of the most famous buildings in America. Also, we'll take a look at Dr. Vannevar Bush, an inventor, engineer, and head of scientific research and development during World War II. It's rumored that the materials found in Cape Girardeau may have actually helped Dr. Bush with a top-secret weapons program. Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. For more information on the Cape Girardeau crash of 1941, amongst the many sources we used, we found MO41, The Bombshell Before Roswell by Paul Blake Smith, and the Cape Girardeau 1941 UFO incident by George Dudding to be very helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Extraterrestrial, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Extraterrestrial on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Lori Gottlieb and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. 